Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, November 24th, 2020. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Uh, So uh, in case people don't realize it, the Trump effort to uh, overturn the results of the election or to challenge the election is is over. Uh, It's all over, but the shouting uh, today, I guess at some point, Pennsylvania will actually certify its results and the number of states that will have certified their results, uh, though people don't quite realize this, will, will be the aggregate number of electoral votes will be over 270. Joe Biden will therefore, in the absence of the Electoral College meeting and doing the formal final final tally, Joe Biden is the next president of the United States. And uh, and Donald Trump signaled as much yesterday by, by, uh, by authorizing that the uh, General Services Administration could begin the formal transition process, giving uh, Biden money for transition, giving him office space, and uh, allowing them uh, time to set up the meetings. Um, so, uh, not with a bang, but a whimper. The bang was last Thursday. Uh, it was obvious. I think it's obvious in retrospect that the, um, uh, horrendous comic nightmarish, uh, Rudy Giuliani, Jenna Ellis, Sidney Powell, um, event, uh, with the running makeup and the yelling and the screaming and the, uh, Hugo Chavez and all of that, uh, represented the final bridge too far for this preposterous effort in the wake of the election to somehow say that uh, that the uh, will of the uh, electorate should be overturned um, because Donald Trump was mad that he lost. Uh, so um, it's kind of a whimper. Sort of like basically it's Trump saying, okay, you can start and that's it. And here we are. So we've been talking about this now for three weeks and uh this is three weeks since the election and genug you know it's done trump is out and everybody in the sound of my voice who thinks that trump won uh needs to go take psychiatric medication i'm sorry (laughs) i'm sorry i've been trying to be nice i'm stopping being nice stop it stop it your children your babies your whiners stop it he lost he lost he lost he lost. I mean, I feel like we've been saying this for quite some time. <laughs> no, but I've been saying that he's a baby. Now I'm going to say that everybody who's standing there still sending me emails about with stupid Federalist articles about how, you know what? Uh, it's really weird that Biden got fewer votes in the cities than Hillary Clinton did. Maybe that means there's fraud when we know that the reason that Biden won the election is that he got more votes than she did in the suburbs. In the suburbs, which are more important than the cities, because the cities are all Democratic anyway. So I don't need you bothering me with your stupid emails about how about how there was massive voter fraud and 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 Trump won or boo. We really need to look at this because there wasn't. And you're stupid and stop it. And I'm sick of you. I mean, the pro-Trump forces deserve to be wrapped across the knuckles a little bit, but I, I spare most of my antipathy for the um, anti-Trump forces who have been writing about telegraphing and talking about how Donald Trump was going to break America because he was forecasting or telegraphing rather his intention to call into question the results of the election in September. Everybody knew this was coming. And so we were treated 
to articles like uh, a very sprawling conspiracy theory in The Atlantic from Barton Gelman, suggesting that from Trump administration and Trump campaign officials, lawyers with the Trump campaign were telegraphing that they were going to uh, go after state legislators and they were going to try to fill the electoral uh, electors with loyal members, regardless of what the votes were. And Nancy Pelosi was going to become president for a minute. Like these, these things were actually written and it was always insane. And people who talked about it like it was insane were mocked and poo-pooed and still to this very day are, you know, people who suggest that the guardrails are stronger than you ever gave them credit for institutionally, culturally. Um, anybody who displays that kind of confidence in the durability of our tested institutions was mocked and derided as being you know, unequal to this historic moment. And quite frankly, you people are a bunch of paranoiacs. It's not us. It was you. And, a, and it's sort of a self-righteous uh, assumption on, on your part of, of the, you know, inflated sense of, of importance when What's going on here is a lot of moving parts that you have actually absolutely no control over. There's this, there's this theory of, of now becoming conventional wisdom that this election went the way it went because of the courage of precisely four Republicans in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Georgia. That they bucked this trend. And if they had not, they would have stolen this election. Nonsense. Absolute nonsense. You've worked yourself up into a froth without okay. any evidence. This is great. This is great. So I'm mad at the at the emails I'm getting from, you know, Trumpy people who will believe anything, any crap that is poured into their ears as long as it confirms their priors. And you are attacking um, all of the, uh, the the post office conspiracy. Oh, by the way, remember the voting machines were going to steal the election for Trump? Anybody remember that? I mean, I know this because friends of mine were texting me and saying, what are you going to do about this? Trump is going to steal from the election machines. <laughs> What are you going to do about this? Yeah. Well, you know, I'm the only Republican conservative that they know. So therefore, they need to email me to fix their problem. You know, it's like, well, you're the Jew. How, you know, why, why don't you eat pig? You know, like that. It's 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 not that. I'm just trying to use a different example. I have a question, though. How much of this is just, you know, typical Trump derangement, which is which is as I think Noah has correctly pointed out several times on the podcast, people actually enjoy their derangement because it, you know, it gives them a purpose and a meaning and a focus. But how much is, how much of it is also this, this sense in which we've defined fascism down for four years, right? I mean, it's really struck me as dangerous to talk about fascism with the glibness that we've seen um, on the left lately because it, it, and the lack of historical understanding of what fascism is. I mean, there's no severability in my mind between, the assumption on the part of certain people who perceive Donald Trump to be this unique threat to democracy, uh, omnicompetent, and, uh, you know, as you say, a, a fascist with this grand design on, on America that he would ruin our democratic institutions and a crippling narcissism. Your, your sense of yourself as being this bulwark of freedom in defense, you know, manning the barricades in defense of this overwhelming onslaught. That is that is a self-conception that is rooted in uh, a, a really per- perhaps unhealthy conceit. Um. Okay, I will uh, do something uncharacteristic here. Uh, you have to actually blame Trump a little here, though, um, because he managed to keep up this, I think, somewhat plausible mystery about how to take his hysterics and um, shenanigans for four years. 
Um, no one, I mean, I was fairly certain that he wasn't going to steal the election. I mean, but, but I could understand why to some degree, um, average Americans, um, everyday Americans never quite got a handle on what his intentions were when he would go out on a limb. Um, I think that's totally fair. The, the question of to take him seriously or literally was kept alive sort of this whole time and remains. So even though, even, even with his, even with it all being over, that is completely um, fair. I'll, I'll limit my contentions to the three months preceding the election, which was when things really got dicey and when the, the Trump campaign and people around them started envisioning out loud these fantastical scenarios that never made any sense to me. Which right. I think okay, we but, were yeah. all good about condemning at the time. I mean, to Abe's point, his his danger, if you're a con of conservative sensibilities, not Republican, conservative, you look at Trump and from the beginning, the chaos agent aspect of his leadership style was exactly what made you go, this is bad news. And it right. is, there is a danger to that, but I don't think the danger was ever fascism. That That is a very important point because the central promise of conservatism, of philosophical conservatism, not libertarianism, and not what we consider the right uh, in, you know, in sort of the West over the last three or four centuries, but conservatism as a philosophy broadly defined is the maintenance and preservation of order. And I don't mean order in a dark, in the darkest sense, you know, because sometimes if you say that, it sounds authoritarian. It means the structures of society in in which we nestle and that um, are ordered always liberty. well there's ordered li right ordered liberty is 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 uh, is a is a very is the is the proper maybe the best way to put it but even even in circumstances where people are less concerned about liberty but there is a consistency in conservatism the idea is that we we live, we are social creatures, and we live nestled within institutions, and those institutions are constantly under threat. Sometimes they're under threat from forces of dissolution that come from the left, and sometimes they are under threat forces of dissolution that come from the right. This is why we have these interesting uh, dilemmas, debates, disputes about capitalism and w whether is capitalism an unalloyed good or is it a danger because it it is as destructive of existing institutions as other forms of uh, economic activity might be as well. And th these are very interesting debates and they are stuff that, you know, that they're like what, what animates my interest in politics in the largest sense. But, um, the point is that Trump, the idea that you come in to break things and to disrupt things, now, that is not conservative. It may be that, you know, we are, there was a, because the great analyst, let's say, of 20th century free markets and capitalism, Joseph Schumpeter, pointed out that creative destruction is a is a is a force in capitalism right that uh, that the old that the old is constantly being replaced by the new new products new ways of doing things new stuff like that and that this is not an unalloyed good because it can destroy previous industries <clears throat> throw people out of work cause destabilization but that it's a natural process right the trump people or the trump philosophy in general or the flight 93 election idea is 
that breaking things and disrupting things is a good in and of itself, even if you don't know what the consequences are going to be. And that is as far from a philosophically conservative perspective as it is possible to get. It's not liberal. It's not rat. It's not socialism. It's not that. It's something else. It is, uh, I don't know what it is. It's sort of nihilistic uh with the hope that it's like slash and burn agriculture which you don't do if you can do better agriculture that's more uh you know properly protective of the land like you don't try to burn things down and then hope that out of the ashes green roots uh, green sprouts come that's the opposite of how you're suppo- how people like us generally tend to think about things and this was grafted onto the American right, and it's very seductive, right? It's extremely seductive. It's an extremely attractive uh, uh, thing for people to embrace. And in that sense, it's like slightly demonic uh, because it seizes on it seizes on uh, impulses, you know, that as Christopher Nolan and his brother wrote in the script for the Dark Knight, like you know, some people just want to see the world burn. Right, that's the line about the Joker and in, in the Dark Knight. There's also an element of it, um, and this is among the um, more the the intellectual class of um, strong Trump supporters, who I guess somewhat paradoxically are interested in the destruction of things, so that there can be a new imposition of a stronger sense of order. Right, um, destroy this because it's already too out of control and 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 we need um, um, uh, a sort of genuine a, a sort of less um, soft sense of order to to impose in its place um, something, right, the, something more along the lines of European conservatism right the idea that the culture war was lost by right. conservatives and right. so everything so that we're trying up. to yeah. build on and conserve is itself corrupted and should be yeah no I think that's important right. and that's a fairly new strain of in the U.S. Uh, yeah. Right. Well, it's very much, you know, I mean, I think in the end, uh, we we are going to have difficulty embracing the idea, which I think is where Noah has been going for the last three weeks, that the system did not break. Uh, Trump was elected, right? Trump was elected. Uh, that was not a break. That was not the system breaking, though you could argue that it was a, it was a form of, it was the display of the institutional collapse of the Republican Party and, uh, and you know, sort of the general forces that created the, the you know, the uh, politics in America, you know, between the 40-yard lines where, you know, these are, this is sort of where the America will tend to, will tend to fight its battles sort of close to the middle line. Uh, and that uh, this uh, X factor came in, but that was under unique circumstances with a uniquely terrible degraded candidate in Hillary Clinton. I don't mean degraded because she was, you know, morally or personally degraded. I mean that she was kind of like uh, the a, a Xerox of a Xerox of a Xerox of a Xerox of, you know, liberalism, Clintonism, Obamaism, first womanism, tokenism, and that somehow just none of it was was all that attractive. But so what happened over the course? Trump had his Trump had his innings. He got some things done. He uh, he created a movement behind him, and he helped create a counter movement that 
lost the Republicans the 2018 election and lost him the 2020 election. And that is the dynamic of American politics, which didn't, it, you know, it didn't break and it, it didn't even really bend that much. I mean, you can argue that it, you know, it bent, you know, if, you know, Trump was able to have people stay at his hotel, which no one ever would have imagined a president would have tried before. You know, these kind of, you know, emolument uh, offenses, which I think are real. And and it's odd that Democrats didn't really press them more and press on idiot Russian paranoic theories uh, instead. But the system didn't break. You know, Biden won the election. He won the election under slightly weird circumstances because of the way the votes were counted, right? If the votes, if it had been a more conventional election day, uh, in which people actually had to go to the polls because, and there wasn't a pandemic, and there had been less in, you know, there had been less at home voting, or what, or or things had been calculated the way things were done the way they were done in Florida. However, you want to slice it, then we wouldn't have had these kind of delays until five o'clock in the morning for the votes to come in to create the eight-hour narrative that Trump was actually winning, and then the election was stolen. I mean, there's this <clears throat> theory now that like. What if the election had been closer? You know, aren't we lucky that the election hadn't been closer? And it's kind of like an unfalsifiable uh, thought experiment. I mean, like, yeah, what if uh, Huey Long hadn't been shot? What if uh, Charlie Lindbergh ran? It's like you didn't, but it didn't. And you're just erecting these theories to justify in a pre-existing determination on your part that all this is very fragile. And in the absence of you... The fragility might have been exposed by, you know, forces at work that are trying to break the system. And, you know, who knows what would have happened? The who knows what would have happened really frustrates me because the answer is you don't. But also, also, you know, counter, you know, counter, I love counter histories. I have a whole counter history, which I think you guys know about what would have happened if Al Gore had won the election or if, or if George W. Bush hadn't gone into Iraq. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, I have a whole theory that if George W. Bush hadn't gone into Iraq, Al Gore would have been reelected in 2004 on the grounds that we should have gone into Iraq. I can make a whole long, very credible argument about this, uh, that the only way for the only way for the Democrats to have won in 2004 would have been to get to Bush's right on a few things and that that would have sort of broken the the dam in his his direction, but of course there's no way of knowing, right? Because counter histories, it's it's fun, but it's like it's it's preposterous. Uh, we do know there was a much closer election than this. Uh, Two thousand was effectively a tied election. I mean, Gore ended up winning by about five hundred thousand votes out of a hundred million cast, right? Uh, and that vote t- tally over time, you know, didn't even come in for a couple of months. And effectively, Bush won by 537 votes in a single state. And the system did bend, but didn't break even then. I mean, I was much younger at the time; I was 18. But I remember a, a markedly more public interest in what was occurring in the well, courts. Because it was genuinely... <laughs> there, was no, there was no street demonstrations. There was, I mean, there was the amount of in, in, intense fixation on this in the press was not mirrored in the streets. No, Maybe but, it would have had the partisan roles been reversed, but they weren't. No, but the stakes were lower. I mean, to be, to be fair, in 2000, 
one of the reasons that the election went the way it went is that you had two relatively anodyne candidates. Bush and Gore were, this was not, you know, a culture war fight. Uh, it was, it was a, it was a, you know, after the dot-com bubble, you know, it was like, it was, it was after the nineties. Like there was, we weren't, a, we weren't under threat and, you know, all of that stuff. So it was a different thing, but you know, it's not like it was a jump ball election. It was basically a tie and the tie went to Bush and Democrats were really, really unhappy about it. And a lot of them said that Bush was not a legitimate president. And, and, you know, circumstances made that argument untenable after, you know, after they passed a huge piece of bipartisan legislation in No Child Left Behind in the first eight months of the Bush administration. And then 9-11 happened, which made Bush, you know, sort of like a unity president for the first time. And then, you know, and then had, had, there were all sorts of ancillary consequences to that. But, you know, this was not that close an election in the end. Like, you know, 2012, uh, in the popular vote, uh, 2012 was closer than this. Uh, I mean, uh, we're we're heading toward uh, Biden winning by four percentage points. Um, and uh, Obama beat Romney by 3.8 percentage points. So it will be, and if, you know, uh, to 2016 was closer, right? That was two percentage points nationally. It's the same number of electoral votes as 2016. The only runaway election that we have had since 1996 was Obama in 2008. Like this was not a particularly, you know. So we're now talking about elections that take place in the in the three, four, five percent range, and we sort of knew this. And then, and I'm sorry to go back to the polling disaster. But people got gulled over the course of 2020 into thinking that we were going back into the direction, and I was too, into the direction of landslide elections. We really thought that because every piece of available social science data was suggesting this. And and all the caveats that we had learned, well, don't look at the national polling, look at the state polling. But the state polling was also showing, you know, a landslide victories in 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 various you know states where the vote ended up being half a percentage point or a percentage point and you know and the the final poll aggregate was eight points in biden's favor and you know we we were all told that this was happening which is another reason why oddly enough this fraud uh narrative has uh, taken hold because it's like well, you said that Biden was going to win by eight, and he only won by four. So obviously, he probably would have lost, except he could only steal four percentage points instead of eight. Another unfalsifiable sort of theory that is uh, that is being laid out. Um, I have no idea. I just went totally. I just went totally. It was like a. It was like but, a, you know the president's. Sir, I'm sorry, Christine. You can. You no, I was just going to say that it, it is important that all of our discussion of this. I think we are all in agreement with Abe that we and and I remember us having these discussions. The rhetoric that the president used to talk about whether or not he would concede was da- was dangerous. That's not how a leader in this country, in a democracy that does function, should be talking about the results of an election. And there's really no, there's none of us, I think, would just would would argue that that was legitimate because that was not how, what he should have been doing. And it does set a bad precedent that hopefully no one will follow um, 
And I didn't like that. That that upset me because, again, because a conservative, I think he, part of his job is conserving the executive office's dignity. And it's one of the reasons a lot of conservatives dislike Bill Clinton, right? Because there was a, there was a decay of dignity of the office. And I do think there's a pretty serious decay of dignity after four years of Trump. And it cost him, you know. Yeah, it did. It, it was dumb politics. You know, he he had a good story to tell. That's not the story he told. He he told this other, this paranoid story. You know, John, I remember you had a, a, a column at the Post, you know, I don't know, a month and a half, two months ago, saying, you know, Trump is talking himself out of the office, out of the Oval Office. And I, and that's, that's, that is what happened. It was. Well, you know, there's another angle to this that um, <clears throat> we haven't touched on it. Bakari Sellers was on CNN the other night and he said pretty much this. I'm paraphrasing because I can't find the quote, but it was Joe Biden's approach to this issue, which was once again, contemptuous of the dialogue on Twitter. He didn't sue. His his transition team didn't make a big fuss out of what the, uh, the, the foot dragging that was going on. They didn't try to uh, lean on Republican senators and blackmail them, morally blackmail them into saying the, you know, the results of the election, they, they gave them breathing space. They allowed them to work through these legal challenges to which they were permitted to the point at which it became farcical. And everybody who was engaging in this sort of thing made clowns of themselves and their case, their case for the legitimacy of the transition only grew stronger with time. And if they had done something different, if they had pounded the table and rent garments and did exactly what progressives Twitter wanted them to do, it would have hardened the opposition. It would have made Republicans more recalcitrant, um, regardless of the merits of their case. So what the Biden team did was once again, to ignore the uh, apoplexy that typifies social media and had a better outcome as a result. Um, I'm trying to look this up because I'm, I'm having trouble remembering who wrote it. But but I, I think, you know, in terms of Trump saying that, you know, he's only going to lose if they steal the election and all of that and the danger of it, you know, uh, the danger of it isn't that other presidents are going to follow in his footsteps exactly, in my view. The danger of it has to do with, like, down-ballot races. Like, is this now what is going to be expected of Democratic uh, Republican politicians by their, you know, uh, hard-charging bases that what they're supposed to do is say, you know, I this was stolen. These people stole the election. Uh, there is the case of uh, this um, uh, congressional candidate in Baltimore in a 30-point Democratic district, Kim... Uh, Klatchik? I, I mean, I, I don't have Klatchik. Okay, who basically lost? She ran in Baltimore. She she had a good commercial. People really enjoyed her commercial, and then she lost. And she said they stole the election from me. I mean, she lost a Republican running in a race that she was never going to win. Then went with the fraud allegation to say that she lost because of fraud. So. You know, is this going to be how local elections are going to be conducted by Republicans? Because this is how you fight. This is like I, I mentioned the other day that, you know, Trump was like, I need to fight because Romney and, you know, Romney and McCain didn't fight and they were losers and they didn't fight and they didn't fight after the election because they lost. And you don't fight when you lose, you concede, you know. Um, I don't know. I mean, that's that's I think where the danger is that you could have this kind of like complete collapse of 
elections are not civil. They're never civil. They're horrible. People say horrible things about each other. They they use horrible rumor mills to peddle horrible rumors about each other. But when things are over, like a boxing match, they shake hands. Right? And somebody says, I called my opponent and I and I said, I want to help you, you know, help our people to do the, the right thing. Um, is that, uh, you know, that's, I wonder if that's going to be permissible or if you're not supposed to say, he ran a good race. I congratulate him on his victory. Look, it's not that it's not, it, it, it shouldn't be permissible. It, it is becoming something of a status quo and partisans on both sides of the aisle entertain this sort of thing, um, mostly to salve their own wounds. Um, but what, what is the legal implication of, of all that? I mean, that's, that's the lesson of this cycle is, and the last cycle, frankly, is that it's a transparently false narrative that appeals only to people who are already converted. It doesn't convert anyone. And it is hypothetically dangerous. As I keep saying, there is a theory in which it could be dangerous, but we have yet to see the danger manifest. Now, it doesn't mean it can't, but we risk overestimating its potential for danger. And in the process, underestimating the durability of our institutions, the, the culture of law, of rule of law in this country, um, in, in a way that we, we, we take for granted. Look, we talked about this before, you know, during 2000, when my father was abroad, he was in Nigeria and there was this, you know, the, the contested election and he got real genuine questions about why the military wasn't doing anything. And why aren't there people in this, why are there, they're allowing these people in the streets to riot and demonstrate and the, and the, the administration is under this profound threat. And why, why isn't, why aren't these institutions moving in defense of this political power that's at risk here? And the answer is, is because we have a mature Republican culture that we take for granted that we don't actually really fully understand because it is so ingrained and cultural and saying, you know, Kim classic saying I lost by 20 points because you know, this, this district was stolen from me is profoundly silly and is of, you know, is of value only insofar as it makes you feel better about yourself if you're a supporter of Kim classics, but it has no other bearish. But it does have a use, I think, for whether it's Kim Classic saying it about losing her election or Stacey Abrams saying it a few years earlier about losing uh, the Georgia governor's race. It, it immediately allows you to be something other than a loser. You've become a victim. And even if the victimization is completely fictional and you never take it to court to prove that you've been a victim, because as you say, no, if you go to court, it's immediately revealed that, you know, you've just made this up or it's it's a conspiracy theory on your part. But it does give them that, and that is valued in our culture right now, being the victim of a systemic issue, right? I mean, this is something that uh, if you're on the right or the left, you can invoke. Um, and that maybe is a better way to deal with people who treat elections this way, is to mock them for their wallowing in victimization when, in fact, they just lost. <laughs> right. Well, it's an interesting question. I, I, I think you're right, Noah, that this is this helps no one except people with their base. But uh, as we've seen, uh, Donald Trump made a gigantic bet that he could somehow run <clears throat> as a base president <clears throat> rather than a reach-out president. And everything that that uh, people more conventionally warned about him, we start warning about, you know, literally January 2017, that um, his base wasn't large enough to win him re-election proved to be true. And remember, we're talking about it, this even includes him getting 10 million more votes than he got 
in 2016 because the simple fact is that there are more Democrats than Republicans and that he he got every he he wrung every vote out that he could including some expansion of the Hispanic vote right and 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 some other people elsewhere but um he did not reach out across his political divide and lost the presidency but um in the in the house in particular and the way gerrymandering has been you know rendered the house uh you know the republic republicans and democrats alike seem unused to the notion that circumstances may arise where they would lose elections. It's not even just the House. I mean, you got to go down to the not just the legislative level, but even farther down the ballot, county commissioner. But in Pennsylvania, Republicans did extraordinarily well down ballot. Mm-hmm. Trump lost. Yeah. I mean, right. that's the right. there's Republicans are not trying to convince themselves of the notion that Donald Trump on the ballot helped them more than his absence did in 2018. And I just frankly think that's just a, a misleading analysis of this election when you consider how well Republicans did almost across the board, with the exception of Donald Trump. Well, okay, so Kevin McCarthy, the you know the the House, uh, the leader of Republicans in the House, very interesting piece today by Byron York in which McCarthy lays out how they did so well in the House. So there are a couple of really astonishing numbers, like the uh, toss-ups, the House toss-ups, as rendered by. The Cook Political Report, um, which is a very damaged brand after after this after this election, but nonetheless, they had twenty seven House races as toss ups, and Republicans won twenty seven of those races. Think about that. <clears throat> Classic. That's a wave. Yeah, but they were. Think about the That's distribution. A wave election. Yeah, so the dis- the distributional effects of that should be just simply as a matter of random chance that Democrats would win. Half of them, a third of them, twenty percent of them. Um, Republicans won all twenty seven. Now that's, of course, also a, a species of this really bad polling and the fact that uh, they were simply as- assuming things on the basis of bad polls nationally and extrapolating them locally uh, to that those kind of numbers. But uh, I will say, McCarthy says that in three or four different cases, and remember, the Republicans uh, will have picked up. 10 or 12 or 13 seats by the time this is all over there. I think there are four cases where he measurably says that Trump's involvement won the seat for the, for the Republicans. Um, And McCarthy has no particular reason right now to be, to be, you know, saying that uh, since most of this is about the genius things that he did. Uh, Interestingly enough, um, believing, looking out after 2018 saying uh, we're too white male. Um, and we need uh, we need other people running and recruiting people to do that, and also throwing money at freshmen uh, who are you know freshman Republicans who are the ones who are or two term Republicans who are usually the one you know people in those seats where they win it away from the Democrats uh, are are most in danger and like strengthening them early so they don't get primary ta- challenges or that they or that they have enough money that they they uh they shot they shoo away democrats from running against them um but he does as i say he says that trump won them a couple of seats so let me um let me pull back and uh, talk to you today about uh, the sponsor you've been hearing about from me headspace uh the meditation app that uh gives you a daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations 
the only one of the meditation apps advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. Headspace can really help you feel better. If you feel overwhelmed, it has a three-minute SOS meditation for you. You need some help falling asleep. Headspace has wind-down sessions that members swear by. Its approach to mindfulness can reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. It's backed by 25 published studies on its benefits, hundreds of thousands of five-star reviews, and over 60 million downloads. It makes it easy for you to build a life-changing meditation practice with mindfulness that works for you on your schedule anytime, anywhere. You deserve to feel happier, and Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com slash commentary. That's headspace.com slash commentary for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered right now. Head to headspace.com slash commentary today. Can I say uh, one thing yes. about about your discussion of uh, McCarthy's uh, autopsy about the election? Um it's really, it was interesting to me to see all of the machination, machinations and the understanding of how you need to early on protect your, your vulnerable members and whatnot as something the Republican Party as an institution is attempting to do and attempting to change how it recruits, et cetera, et cetera. While on the Democratic side, the organization doing that isn't the party. It's groups like it's activist groups like the Justice Democrats who are actively finding weak Democrats and then like picking them off with primary challenges. And it's it's just an interesting contrast that I I, I will be I'll be interested to see if the Democratic Party shifts its strategy in the wake of this you know uh, shellacking that they got in terms of recruitment and protecting vulnerable incumbents and and the like. Right. Well, I mean, a part of the thing also is that uh, uh, Democrats uh, snuck up on Republicans unawares in 2018. Uh, they were Republicans were uh, sloppy and careless at the House level, and uh, and for example, did had not done the homework necessary to understand uh, the ballot harvesting game that the Democrats were going to play in California, um, and they got sandbagged and waylaid and lost, I don't know, four or five seats in California they didn't even think were particularly at risk uh, because of this uh, new w- rule that made it possible for others to collect your ballot and bring it to the polling place. And in 2020, they closed that gap, you know, because once they saw this is the whole thing about 2016 and 2020 that, that, that I, again, I don't, I want to keep saying I said this before, but that, you know, uh, Biden wins Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin in 2020. Why? Because the election of 2016 said to them, look, all you need to do is win, you know, 20, 30,000 votes in the, you know, pull back, pull back uh, 20 to 30,000 voters in these states in aggregate, you know, sort of in mass, and you can win this election. So spend four years trying to win Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania. And they did just that. Like you, if somebody uh, pulls a trick, an amazing trick that wins them the election, you then can you, you you're able in the in the next go round to correct the mistake that you made by not paying sufficient attention. So uh, that's the other thing that happened, you know. And so uh, there'll be some version of this on the Democratic side in 2022, because I think that's a really interesting point that Christine makes. The the Justice Democrats and stuff are following the mandate of the Tea Party. They're they're doing what the Tea Party did in 2009-2010 in, in primarying and, and, and taking down more centrist 
Republicans and replacing them with activist Republicans, right? So um, these are mostly in safe seats, but, you know, you could really see a kind of showdown with, you know, we have a four seat majority here. Don't screw it up. Like we are, you know, we are, we are in deep trouble. And if you, you know, if you make this election, if you sh- try to shift the, uh, the, the house party to the left, hugely in 2021 and 2022 we are going to be in the you know we're gonna we're gonna be wiped out i mean but the same lessons are applicable to republicans in 24 right for the next presidential race right now there is this there's this notion that republicans are comforting themselves with that trump lost but trumpism didn't but trumpism cost them the suburbs right trumpism cost them georgia for the first time since 1990 two rather in and Arizona for the first time since 1996. I may have those reversed. I'm not sure, but either way, a generation has passed since the last time a, a Democrat won those states in the presidential level. And doesn't matter how well you do Trumpism in the upper Midwest, if it costs you the, the new South and the Southwest. Right. Right. So, and that's an easy one to fix. Right. You can do, you can do populism without being so pugnacious and uh, aggressive and and racially hostile that that's the sort of thing that turns off educated white suburban housewives well, and that's me, the sort of thing it's not hard not to do i don't well, i don't me, know i don't know that yeah. you i don't know that it's not hard not to do i mean i, I, I think populism comes with that edge um but i think that is part of it let me, well, let me let's acknowledge oh. the suburban wine moms are also very touchy so we just have to put that yeah. out. <laughs> but let me uh let me let me throw this out which is that uh, there's this idea that you know Trump lost but uh, Trumpism didn't lose or conversely which is sort of what McCarthy is saying that Trump won as much as he lost right i mean he lost but he got 74 million votes you know which is more votes than anyone got except for Biden ever and you know and all of that and yes um you know he may have stimulated this 80 million vote surge against him but you know he also you know he also increased his vote take and the republicans vote take and all that well what if the reverse is true what if trumpism lost and trump lost by which i mean that Trump's victory was his defeat. It's hard to imagine him doing better, right, than 74 million votes nationally. Um, But part of it was that people didn't like him. And part of it was that people didn't like some of the policies that he evinced. Particularly, I would say, the suburban moms with the kids in cages, or even if we want to go back to the Obama put the kids in cages in the first place. But, you know, the Muslim ban, uh, Charlottesville, uh, you know, a lot of other stuff like that. And, you know, I think that you could make a very credible argument that um, that Trump did as well as anyone could ever have done with himself and with his set of ideas and the Republican Party would be insane to go back to this well, either to him or to his issue set or to somebody else who tries to take on his issue set. Anyone? Well, I mean, I'd like to think that. No, but I'm saying, I, I know. But, <laughs> I don't know if it's true. No, but that's why I'm, 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 I'm just throwing it out as a, as a thought experiment, like, 
maybe Republican voters will want it so it doesn't matter what the party should or shouldn't do. They wanted Trump in 2016 and they got Trump. 30% of 35% of them will absolutely. Right. But that's what he won the primary with in 2016. And that might be all it takes if there's no alternative to rally around, if there's no poll, one unifying poll in that debate. But there will be. There will be at least a debate about it. Look, Biden didn't win. You know, people don't win the primaries with, you know, unless they're running for reelection without opposition like Trump did. I mean, people this is how people win primaries with 35 to 37. Biden certainly when Biden really put Sanders away, he still hadn't gotten you know we got you know the aggregate vote for biden wasn't even yet 35 percent so well and you could certainly have a republican that spoke some of the language signaling language of trump in four years but didn't look like trump maybe it's a woman who's of a minority group maybe it's someone who doesn't look like trump and doesn't have his style could still message to that base without being Trump. And that I think would be, that's kind of the perfect uh, uh, candidate for the the hardcore Trumpies, um, even if they don't know it yet, because that's a person that can win those suburban voters while also still signaling to the base, you know. But the whole game will be throughout that primary will be to get yeah. that candidate on the record yeah. about how they feel about Trump, the man. Yeah. Not not you know, his policies, because it's well, always remember, about the man. It's, it's going to be, you know, do you display sufficient gratitude for all that Donald Trump? For dear leader. <laughs> OK, look, let let let's let let's talk this through seriously in this way. So all we can see in our in our future is sort of, you know, Trump, Trump's there. Trump will go away. Trump's going to be there. He's going to have a movement. He'll have a TV show. He'll do this. He'll have rallies. He's the endorsement. People are going to want blah, 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 blah. But. You know, if I had said to you in 2012, at the after Romney lost, that uh, that uh, Donald Trump was going to be the nominee in 2016, you would have said I was crazy. If I had said that, uh, if I had said that Joe Biden was going to be the nominee in 2020, I'm not sure you would have said that I was crazy. But at the at the end of 2016, you know, our general thought or the general kind of conventional thought was. Democrats better look seriously at nominating uh, an African American because that loss of the African American turnout is is what what killed Hillary Clinton. So you were then talking about like I wrote the thing about how Oprah should be the nominee. You know that's where what why Kamala Harris, um, who as we can have seen is really not a very good politician, was suddenly this uh, you know somebody that everybody had on their lips and Cory Booker and various other people. Um, and you know, outcomes, you know, outcomes from the bullpen comes Joe Biden, uh, you know, a 77, 76, 77 year old, you know, white ethnic, uh, you know, uh, glad handing politician who would really impress nobody over the course of his entire political career, winning race after race after race in a safe seat in a, in a safe state in a tiny state. And then, you know, some being elevated unexpectedly to the vice presidency, like we don't know what's going to happen in 2024. We have no clue. We have no idea what the what the issue set is going to be in 2024. If I said to you after the after the financial meltdown, I, in fact, I thought at the time like there's no way the Republican Party is going to nominate a guy who ran a hedge fund uh, after the after 2024. A, a hedge fund guy who created Obamacare in Massachusetts was going to be the Republican nominee. 
that was insane. But in the end, he was the only, everybody else was like unthinkable. That was the weird part is if there had been a mildly thinkable other candidate who wasn't a lunatic or like ran on, you know, preposterous ideas or something like that, you know, Romney wouldn't have been the nominee. So who knows? But I mean, it's like Trump's blotted out the sun and, and just yesterday, the air really did start going out of the balloon. I, I think um, the who knows aspect is um, even more intense this time around than than um, after any election because really who knows what the post-vaccine, hopefully post-pandemic U.S. is going to be like. That 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 oh, is a, that's an entirely different proposition. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it really is. I mean, no, aside from bankrupt, but I mean, I think that, look, the national mood could shift remarkably. Yep. You know, we could have a huge, we could be bankrupt or we could have a huge spurt of, uh, you know, of economic growth, um, particularly. Or both. Right. Or both. Well, I think both is the most likely. A, right? Yeah. I right. mean, a um, profound cleavage between the people who are doing well yeah. and the people who never recovered. Yeah. How about this? How about the fact that we have now we will have let's let's assume that things go really well with the vaccinations, right? Uh we are going to have a revolution uh in uh in American medical science led by this. Like this is like the space program. Like we said we need a vaccine in a year. We did a vaccine in a year. You know, the what ancillary benefits are we going to gain from the breakthrough in that system where, you know, ordinarily it would take seven years for something like that to be brought to market. Right. I mean, I I don't know. People will, for one thing, hopefully people will be, uh, will see the, the uh, danger to some of the sclerotic approval processes for medical devices, for example, even the categorization of certain things as medical devices that just slow uh, innovation. I mean, that that actually is very promising because I think a lot more average Americans are like, why would it take six months to get a paper test to see if I have COVID? Well, because that's how the bureaucracy functions. So challenging that would be a very welcome thing. Not just that, treatments to uh, conditions like Alzheimer's, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, half a dozen chronic conditions that there are treatments, experimental treatments that are available, but are by no means anywhere near approval and are going through trials abroad because that's where you have to do trials. I mean, all that stuff might change. Yeah. And the kind of resistance that you have from this classic set of democratic constituencies, right? The sort of the, uh, the tort bar, uh, the regular, you know, sort of the overregulatory state and all of that. Um, if this goes as well as we hope it goes, a lot of their strength is going to dissipate in the face of this overwhelming fact that we started in March. And let's say by the end of, uh, you know, 16, 17 months later, 330 million people effectively will be, I mean, maybe not, maybe 250 million people will be vaccinated. Um, And what's more, a vaccine, vaccines that require you to have two doses of the vaccine, uh, this will be a, uh, this could also be a kind of moment of competence 
American a re a reassertion of American competence. You know, Abe knows my theory that somehow everything stopped working right. There was this point at which things stopped working right, even while things were working surreally right. Like you know, remember we no longer require uh, we no no longer have to hold on to our paycheck. We, it's fine with us that the paycheck goes from some theoretical place com- computer to to uh, our computer and then we have money in our computer and then our computer we pay other people money through our computer and we barely hold you know for a lot of us we hardly ever see cash anymore we have essentially gone to a very close to cashless society a lot of people in the united states and that all happened while we weren't looking or didn't really pay all that much attention and it's kind of an amazing thing but i'm saying we we have this kind of co- crisis of competence um, that uh, this could really, you know... But that might not be going away. I mean, in the very near term, you could have an extremely stratified society based on income, you know, people right. who recovered, but also who's who's getting vaccinated and who's not. There has to be some measure of proof right. because the world will open up for the vaccinated people and right. it won't for everyone else. But you don't... There has but, to be some way to demonstrate that. that will be a choice. But see, this is different because in a financial crisis, people lose their jobs through no fault of their own, right? In a crisis, things happen to people through no fault of their own. If Americans, if 40, 50, 60, 70 million Americans refuse to get vaccinated, that will be on them. It, most oh, no, of I'm us. Gonna, he's saying who, who gets it first, like the waves. Oh, how oh. Yeah, and oh, I'm, but I'm, more I'm about talking blue about blue state governors yeah, who I'm will talking. impose that kind of a stratification on their respective states. You know what? I'm sort of thinking about this toward the end. Not, not, not the the process of the vaccination itself could be a total mess. I'm not saying it won't. I'm saying that when it's all done, see, unlike Obamacare or something, which is that there was no end game for Obamacare, right? Obamacare happened and there was a big mess and it was never really implemented and all of that. It was the biggest thing that ever happened, and they didn't even know how to design a website and all that was terrible. And so, and they could never even claim any measurable result from this, you know, gigantic expansion of policy, right? But here we will have this massive national effort, you know, to create 750 million doses of vaccine, which all have to be distributed in different ways and different kinds of freezers in different kinds of places and all that. And if it works, um, It'll be the it'll be the equivalent of sending a man to the moon. Now, maybe people by the time we sent the man to the moon, they stopped caring as much as they they ought to. But you know, uh, that was also sort of like a taking it for granted that we people had already given us credit for going to the moon <laughs> because they'd been watching these space launches for eight years. I just think, I just think, yeah, we don't know what the national mood is going to be in twenty twenty four. Yeah. It could be a lot better. No, it could be like, you know, some sort of uh, 21st century equivalent to the jazz age, you know, just, you know, people going out and, um, j- yeah. you know, just sort of um, happy to be past this thing. We, we already have speakeasies. Right. There was a fantastic piece in the New York magazine, which read like a Lois Long dispatch <laughs> from from these underground party venues where people are, you know, having COVID parties you know, and where that police knock on their door and like break it up. It, it's really is a throwback to the twenties. It's all, all cyclical. Yeah. As is, as is sort of like there, there's a funny thing. If you think back to the summer and people, you know, like shaming people for being on a beach without a mask, 
Isn't that the Women's Christian Temperance Union? Just like, just give them like a 21st century version of the of that. You know, like this whole culture of shaming people for not behaving in conformity with the rules that, you know, let's face it, we don't even know if the rules are good rules. You know, really. Uh, granted, we all wear masks, but you know. If we read in 2023 that it turned out that the mass really didn't have that much of an effect, would anybody really be surprised? No. Right. <laughs> There's going to be a, a millennial carry nation throwing her iPhone through the uh, through the saloon window. <laughs> well, I mean, there was, you know, it's like, the, anyway, I'm just saying, like, I think there is a lot of, there, there are a lot of parallels and analogs to, you know, that this, uh, COVID was a is it was a, a medical catastrophe that also you know dovetailed very much with I would say do gooder leftist liberalist liberal intolerance patterns uh, that are very long standing about sort of interfering with you know it's like that joke about uh, about you know why why evangelicals don't you know don't like premarital sex because it might lead to dancing. You know that there's this whole, you know, there's a there, the 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 desire to take away from other people because they might be having fun when you think that everybody should be, you know, wearing black and being in mourning is a is a deep human impulse that was just rampant on and the, the left. And the footloose, but anyway. <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, uh, so we will do one more of these this week and then take off until. Uh, until Monday, so we will we'll be back to you uh, tomorrow for Abe, Christina, Noam, John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.